part of the contradiction about cryptocurrency is that no matter what you look at it, you're going to see what you want to see inside of it. It's kind of a mirror reflecting back at you um, because it's a political project. And we're back with The Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. If you like what we're doing here, I've got one request for you. If you could please share this show with one person, it would make all the difference. So today, we're about to speak with Stephen Deal. He's a software engineer and he's been working in the financial sector for many years now. He's also been writing about crypto, cryptocurrencies, and the dangers that he sees with them. So we reached out to Steven because there's a lot of great information about there about why you might want to buy crypto or how the benefits that there could be for the greater economy. Whereas Steven comes in with the alternate perspective of what are some negative impacts there could be from all this. So we dive into all his thoughts in greater detail. Steven, welcome, thanks for joining. Hi Bradford, love to be on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting. So you've got uh, a lot of interesting writings out there on the internet about some really in-depth tech software coding that I certainly can't wrap my head around. And then a lot of uh, crypto musings, your thoughts about uh, what is crypto? What does it mean for us as humanity and people? Um, And before we jump into the weeds of that, which I'm very excited to talk about, Perhaps what's a little bit of um, what makes Steven Steven? What's your background? How did you get involved in uh, software and you know why even start thinking about crypto? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'm quite a normal kind of rank and file software engineer. Um, I've been kind of known for my writings on very deep technical topics in like compilers and the numerical computing for most of my career. Um, and for the last 15 years, I've been working uh, in or around like the financial services sector. Um, and it's hard not to notice the crypto phenomenon that's been kind of occurring at the intersection of both the technology space and uh, the finance space. And as somebody that has knowledge on kind of both of those subjects, um, I became kind of a bit concerned about uh, the role that the software was having to play uh, on the world. And so I started mm-hmm. writing about it uh, using my expertise in software and finance. Very interesting. And so perhaps before we dive in deeper, how would you define a cryptocurrency or digital assets, whatever your choice, uh, you know, phrase is? Well, let's focus on cryptocurrencies because digital assets is a broad term that's so broad that it's, it's very mm-hmm. um, complicated. So cryptocurrencies, um, I would say, are a very new piece of software. They're only about as old as around 2008, coincidentally the same year as the financial crisis, um, which is a way to create... Um, well, in namesake, the alleged, the alleged uh, project was to basically create a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, uh, basically a means of transmitting payments between people without using intermediaries. Uh, that was the goal. Um, and I'm happy to kind of go into why that goal kind of didn't actually manifest, but re- what's really happened is that cryptocurrencies are not really currencies anymore. Um, what cryptocurrencies are, are a form of speculative asset uh, that people trade on a peer-to-peer network. But it's not clear to me um, what the purpose of these things actually are. Uh, and so I have some deep kind of philosophical problems about um, what's at the heart of a cryptocurrency. But that's the original goal of what they were they intended to be. Mm-hmm. Were you ever, 
there's definitely somewhat of an in evangelical religious fervor along the narrative of crypto and what it could mean for humanity uh this this more utopian view were you ever uh i would say in line with that like have have your thoughts changed over time yes yeah, certainly um you're right there's kind of this kind of almost religious fervor associated with crypto assets um part of it being from the fact that once you've bought something, you have an incentive to like want to proselytize it um, and to drive your investment up. And the thing about crypto uh, assets um, is that they're an investment scheme that pays out old investors from new investors. Um, so by the very nature of these crypto assets, people are basically trading them because they want to appreciate uh, some return by basically buying it low and selling it high right which is quite different than what a currency is the purpose of a currency uh, is uh, to exchange for goods or services in an economy um, so cryptocurrencies aren't currencies but they're actually speculative assets um, and so by the nature of the fact that they pay out old investors from new investors by buying it you're then incentivized to go recruit more people into the scheme right so the very sustaining aspect of it is based purely around recruiting other people to buy it later than you did. A so-called like greater fool is the only source mm -hmm. of income on these products, right? They um, they exist to basically be a hot potato that people trade with each other to realize a return. Uh, and so that creates a very kind of strange incentive structure around these assets. And you couple that with a kind of the sort of populist narrative around these things that this is a technical artifact that's going to replace the financial system or build a new financial system. Um, you get an asset which encourages people to recruit more, and then you have a narrative associated with it um, that uh, people buy into. And that creates a kind of very cult-like mentality around these things. It's not sort of directly like a cult in some ways because it doesn't have any kind of like supernatural kind of uh, being or anything at the center of it, but it's kind mm -hmm. of like um, similar to like QAnon or something. It's, it's it's kind of one of these conspiracy cults. That's hard. Oh, people aren't going to like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they have some shocking similarities between each other. Like uh, they're all about some sort of grand apocalyptic events um, in which there's going to be one regime change from one system to another. Uh, the QAnon folks refer to it as like the, you know, the great awakening or something. And then the Bitcoin people think of that, you know, the financial system is going to explode someday. And uh, on the other side of that, there's going to be this glorious sort of libertarian utopia. Um, and that all of the US dollar is going to collapse and empires will fall and everything will just be subsumed by this one global financial system or something. That's, that's the story they tell themselves. Um, and that's really part of the asset at this point. It's a very strange asset. Yeah. So maybe, you know, you've definitely lined out some of your arguments there, but perhaps um, pretend I'm a fervent believer in the current narrative that you laid out and maybe present your case. Um, I don't know if there's other elements of, of where your skepticism comes from, but like, why are those scenarios not going to play out? Sure. So you'd have to ask the question, like, what are you buying at the end of the day? Um, because they're not currencies. Um, a currency has a very 
strict definition in economics. It's a, it's a medium of account, it's a store of value, uh, it's a unit of exchange. And crypto doesn't actually fulfill the requirements of being like a textbook currency. Nobody really tries to use it as much as a currency because, well, it really sucks for payments. It's a hyper-volatile product. Um, if you tried to run an economy in which Elon Musk could bankrupt half the economy by tweeting two emojis, it would never work, right? Um, and the reason that they're so hyper-volatile um, is that there's no central issuer, right? There's no central bank behind a cryptocurrency um, to stabilize out the, the fluctuations, right? There's no central body that controls the supply of bits. Um, so, and there's no underlying economic process that these things sustain. There's no economy for Bitcoin. The only economy is people buying low and trying to sell it to a greater fool at some point in the future as like an infinite hot potato. So that's not a thing you could ever run an economy on. And so like, I think the currency narrative has failed. Um, so it could be a commodity, except there's no actual like direct use for a cryptocurrency that's non-circular, right? A cryptocurrency exists not for any kind of economic purpose, right? Um, like petrol or like a cow or, you know, wheat or something is a commodity. So there's nothing in a Bitcoin that has any industrial use. Um, at which point then it could be what's called like a security product, um, which is determined in the United States law, uh, which is a like a contract that you can create of nothing, um, kind of like a stock right, or like a bond, right? It's an agreement between two people, counterparties, for a specific amount of money to be exchanged per some legal prescription, right? Um, so cryptocurrencies look like securities. Um, and if you try to value them as securities, um, then if you apply all of the techniques we know about how to value these things, right, there's no underlying income uh, in a cryptocurrency. Um, they are inherently what's called a zero-sum game in economics, right? Um, so the only money that could possibly pay out uh, the investor pool only comes from uh, new investors paying out old investors, right? So it's very has similar structure to a Ponzi scheme in that sense, um, because there's no underlying income from from Bitcoin. Like there's no company, there's no cash flows, um, there's no economic activity that it, it produces to bring money in to pay out other investors. So it's purely from recruiting other investors into the scheme. Um, this is what's called a greater fool asset in economics. Um, so therefore its value should fundamentally be um, basically zero. Um, there's no reason for this thing to actually have any non-zero value. Um, and what you have is basically these unregulated securities because um, normally securities in the United States or most countries are regulated products, right? Um, being traded to people based on this kind of back of this cult-like narrative around this new financial system or something. Um, and none of that actually makes any sense. Um, so it looks like a valueless speculative bubble uh, propped up on an asset that has a sort of cult-like following around it to kind of promote bringing more and more fools into the scheme. Uh, and this to me does not seem like a terribly sustainable enterprise. And I think it's a bit socially corrosive because I think I see how these things are going to end. Uh, I think it's gonna end with a very large crash when the, the last fool buys the last Bitcoin. Um, and I don't see how this can sustain itself forever. And I'm worried about the, the harm that may cause to the financial system uh, and individuals who get involved with it uh, because it looks like a giant bubble. 
Well, I definitely want to dive in more to your ideas of how it could be a speculative mania. But 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 before, um, and I want to precurse this question with the fact that I'm definitely not an expert in the crypto space. And so I'm sure some people are listening to this is like, well, what about this project? What about this project? And and I I can't throw all the projects at you and, and hear your assessment. So I'll just pick one kind of basic general one um, where you say a lot of these tokens or projects don't have cash flow. And so just, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective on what about the um, crypto-based sports betting? Like um, trying to think of some of the platforms like Chili's or some of these ones where it, it's it's not necessarily something new, but it's using blockchain technology to facilitate betting on sports teams and buying and selling of things. And so there perhaps is cash flow from users entering this pool and you know creating transactions and fees and all this stuff. It is where where's the hole in that? I guess is the question from from your perspective. Well, I'm not familiar with the specific project you're referring to, um, but. If I could describe a similar kind of projects, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, please. If you're buying the token, I assume there's some token involved in this project, right? Um, if you're buying it um, as a means to basically have price appreciation, like you're trying to buy the token low and sell the token high, right? Um, then you're actually you're buying a speculative investment, right? What you use that token for inside of the so-called like platform or something, all that does is just shift money around. Right. So imagine a poker game. If you can give this entire ecosystem as a poker game, the only money that comes is from the people that bring money to the table. Right. And then you play a bunch of games of poker, right? Money circulates around, but there's no actual money flowing in that's not people who are buying the token to speculate on it. Right. So it's a wealth redistribution scheme. It's not a wealth creation scheme. So the only way that can happen is if people buying the token contributed more dollars or euros to the pool to pay out later investors. Right, um, and that's the difference between like a company which actually sells a product or service, right, and a speculative asset that has no income associated with it. Um, ultimately, no matter what the kind of internal structure of the sports betting or whatever, like unless it's bringing in more dollars by selling a product or service on the market, right, um, then I don't see how it could possibly not be like a valueless asset. Um, now there are like stablecoin projects, which are basically tokens that are uh, basically means to do payments pegged to actual currencies, like a dollar or something. And some sort of external gambling platforms will take stablecoins, much in the way that like casinos take casino chips, right? Um, and those have some credibility to be sort of money, uh, but they're basically money that's used exclusively to sort of arbitrage regulation. Uh, to basically get around the fact that you probably can't be sending money in dollars. So this casino will take this sort of chip that you can buy on the side and you can send that digitally. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why stable coins exist. Um, but stable coins don't produce a return and they're basically just purely for basically doing transactions that the government would want you to do or involved in things where they couldn't, possibly take dollars because they can't get access to dollars or banking accents. There's a few sort of businesses that have that property, um, but uh, they're kind of usually outside the law. Um, so I have some, some concerns about the general business model of that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, 
So what about the speculative mania? Perhaps maybe explain a few of the past manias throughout history and then make some parallels, like try to convince me, like, why is crypto speculative mania in, in what ways does it look similar, behave similar to past events? Well, speculative manias occur when people start buying products um, not based on like their underlying value or what's called their fundamentals, right? But they buy them based purely on the ability to offload them on a greater fool. Um, so I think a lot of us are old enough to remember like the Beanie Baby media, uh, in which there was this one toy company in the United States that issued little plush toys, right? So the value of a little plush toy was about, you know, 30 cents or something, right? At the value to produce it, right? But people were selling these things um, on a secondary market in which they would trade little plush dolls with each other. And they just kept going up and up and up because the company understood that you can create these artificially scarce supply of atomic things that you can trade. Um, and that created an artificially scarce market uh, in which the number of beanie babies was finite. And what happens when you have sort of finite things that people value? Well, they just keep going up and up and up until they stop valuing them anymore, right? <laughs> um, it's all about a narrative and it's about a narrative that at some point doesn't even matter anymore because the whole purpose is basically just number go up. And that's what happened with beanie babies. This happens with, in the equities market, it happens sometimes as well, the dot-com bubble. Everybody and their mother was going off and starting dot-com businesses because they wanted to get in. It didn't even matter what you did as a company. So long as you had dot-com in your name, right, you could probably raise a large amount of money and try to list your company. Um, and we had all sorts of crazy ventures back in the dot-com bubble uh, that 95% of them don't even exist today. Um, and then, you know, historically, we've had things like the tulip mania in the Netherlands, um, which was a market meeting which people randomly decided one day, like, just like Bitcoins, that we want to value tulips. And then there became this whole economy of tulip bulbs that people speculated on for about six months. And at one point, they were worth like, um, one tulip was like worth as much as like six houses. People were just buying them because they thought to offload them on a greater fool. And then I can time this bubble and uh, get out of it before the rest of the fools do, but most people don't. Um, and there's even, I mean, this is part of a feature of capitalism, right? These kind of market manias have always existed, right? Um, and they always end the same way. Um, so when people start trading things not based on their value, but by um, thinking they can offload them on fools forever, and it always ends the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's interesting because when I think about the element in those other manias you just mentioned, so tulips, dot-com companies, and Beanie Babies, um, Beanie Babies and tulips, they have value today. Like, what's the purpose of a tulip? It's kind of just to be enjoyed. And so it makes me think of the argument people pose now with some crypto assets or NFTs of, well, I just, I just want to own this and enjoy it. There's not really a productive use or a purpose for it. Is that is that enough for something to have value? Or is there something else going on there? Well, this is the argument that like um, these things are like art, right? Because the value of what's the value of a Monet? What's the value of a Picasso? Well, economics doesn't have an answer to that question. Um, and so you could make the case that like some of these crypto assets are basically just performance art. Um, so people have done this throughout history. Actually, there was this um, one fellow named Ducamp who was this uh, 
like postmodern artist and he basically would just like take um like you know feces and put them in a can or something and then he would like sell fractions of shares in that like it was just, it was just like absurd things to make a point about like what's, <laughs> what does art actually mean right uh and people would buy them i mean um uh, there's like the banksy paintings where he like shreds the piece into like 40 different pieces so like you could think of bitcoins basically being this like libertarian performance art crossed with a banksy where instead of shredding the painting into like 12 pieces, it's into 21 million pieces. And he's offloaded that on the world as this kind of libertarian performance art, uh, split into 21 million pieces for people to buy. Like, uh, that's one perspective on this. I'm not sure that to me <laughs> justifies its existence because um, it's basically just art at that point. Um, and uh, the amount of, oh, okay, I mean, if you want to, they get into the externalities to have this piece of performance art on the world. It's like all these people are like losing their life livelihood just to make this piece of performance art. Like it's really dark perspective on the world. If you want to think about it that way, uh, you can, but like, if I knew that I would stay way far away from this as an investment. Like if I thought that was the case, right. Cause it seems like it's this performance art that just destroys people's lives. Right. Like, I don't know. What, so what about the person who, approaches and sees this space in the same way you do, but then chooses to invest. Like, do you have thoughts on those types of people or is it just like, yeah, have at it? Well, I talk to these people all the time. Um, so I've had a lot of conversations with like hedge fund managers who will talk to me and say like, well, we know it's a scam. Uh, we know it has no fundamentals. We know the present value of it is zero, uh, but there's enough fools born every day who will, not know about those three. And so I'm just going to trade it anyways. Um, and that's what happens in, in the finance world. People just don't care uh, that if there's any fundamentals, they'll just trade. I mean, there are crazier things that actually occur in markets, like derivatives products. Some of them are actually far crazier than cryptocurrencies, and people trade those all the time, right? Um, so, but it's a deeply cynical view uh, because the externalities for even this thing even existing in the world means that it's this massively negative sum gambling product um, on this deeply manipulated market um, that's basically controlled by a bunch of wealthy individuals who can manipulate the price as much as they like. Um, so yeah, you can cynically say, I don't care about any of those things. I don't care about the externalities. I don't care who gets destroyed so long as I make money uh, on this product. Um, that makes it like, like this is this big push in investing with them out to be like environmentally sustainable uh, and have governance, like ESG investing as an asset class. Um, people are trying to do better things with their money. Uh, rather than investing in like what's called vice industries. But I'd argue like crypto is basically the giant vice product that you could possibly buy. Uh, it's basically just like a valueless stock that's tied to nothing but human suffering as it's underlying. So yes, I'm sure there are hedge funds that will trade that, but I wouldn't go anywhere near that. I think it's deeply problematic. That's what I want to put my money toward basically. <laughs> that's an ethical argument, right? Yeah, <clears throat> which is very interesting. You know, it's funny, preparing for this, inter for this interview, I read many of your uh, crypto essays. And yeah. I was like, wow, this this guy's pretty cynical. He's like very, very cynical. And I was very curious the kind of person that you would be when I spoke to you. And now that I'm speaking with you, I'm like, 
ah, Steven seems very, um, very even keel, actually quite optimistic. Like you, you don't seem cynical at all. And, and, and you're saying these hedge fund managers, they choose to invest, they're cynical. And so I guess I, I, I'm very curious about this. Like, do you think that you are cynical in thinking about cryptocurrencies? Um, like what, do you have emotions when you think about what it may be causing to people and how people might be, you've mentioned it many times now, um, it's impacting people in a negative way. And how, how do you think about that? Yeah, you're right. If you read my writing, you probably think I'm like a very like angry person or something, but I'm actually kind of like <laughs> a teddy, teddy bear in person, actually. I just, <laughs> I'm not, not that, I just see angry online, but I'm not terribly angry. I just, I'm quite angry at the phenomenon uh, because you're right. I think it's it's causing a lot of suffering in this world. Um, I look at the, the hard numbers and you look at it, it's like, you know, $120 billion got stolen last, you know, year in like the DeFi hacks where people are basically just robbed of their investments. I see the amount of pump and dumps happening in the space, like deeply manipulated markets in which everybody loses their shirt because people can, you know, the things that the Wolf of Wall Street kind of showed. Um, and I see these deeply fraudulent projects attracting billions and billions of dollars. All the while I see it becoming kind of more entangled with our financial system. Uh, so I basically see like the same kind of speculative properties that happened back in the 1920s before we had regulation to kind of fix markets happening again. And I know how that story ended last time with the, like the market crash of 29, right? That was really bad for a lot of people, including like myself, if I'm involved in this, there's another financial crisis, like that's just bad for everybody, right? And I see these products becoming, you know, deeply predatory at their core. Uh, they basically are very Ponzi-like in their nature because most people lose their shirt in this whole process, right? All the while, people just ignore the risks associated with them. Uh, and so like my, my fear is that a lot of this falls apart because it has to. Because everything I know about economics and finance says these things look like speculative bubbles and every single speculative bubble in history has ended the same way. Uh, and I'm deeply concerned what impact that's going to have on the world I have to live in and like pass on to my children. Uh, and so like, yeah, I can't help but kind of speak out about those things because I don't want to see that happen to the world. That's mm -hmm. really my, my impetus behind why I write the things I do because I, I think it has a very malign force on the world and I don't see the upside on things. Uh, they look like gambling products kind of masquerading as currencies to build lots of criminal enterprises. That scares me. Yeah. So my question is, do is this an ethical or a moral problem for you or is it simply yeah if it's a massive global mania and there's another financial crisis it's going to negatively impact me and those just strictly from a financial and economic basis or or is it wrong because it's wrong what do you mean by wrong because it's wrong like, are you, are you saying it's ethically wrong? Because if so, what is your basis for ethics? Like ethics and morals have to be rooted in something. And so if they don't exist, then this isn't wrong. It's just is what it is. 
and maybe you don't want to be negatively impacted from an economic standpoint. But if but if you believe in morals and ethics, I guess the question is, where does that where does your view of morals and ethics come from? Well, okay, this is more profound question. To get a little so, like, philosophical I'm, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the foundations for my web. Okay, sure. We can go. I'm a humanist. So <laughs> we really want to go there, like presuppositionally. And I'll say this is like a presuppositional thing. I don't like to see like other people suffer. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something I can justify. It's like a just human thing. It's a presuppositional truth I have to accept because it seems true to me, right? It's watching other people, you know, have hard comings in their lives and suffer as human beings does not resonate with me as a human being. Maybe for evolutionary reasons or whatever. It's like, but like whatever, let's just consider that. Um, so then we can go from there. Like, I mean, um, I don't want to see other people, like I, I grew up in the financial crisis. Like I came of age during that period. And I saw the kind of hardships that happened when I grew up in uh, rural America. I saw what happened uh, during that thing. So this resonates with me as like a person on a more visceral level. Like uh, those were bad and they caused a lot of suffering for a lot of people. So like, uh, you know, if you don't want to watch others around you suffer and you think there's this thing that you know from the, your own life uh, generally does that. And I contribute a lot of things that happened um, in my life from what I saw as reverberations of last financial crisis. Um, then yeah, you should probably oppose things that uh, would cause that in the future. And that's the most human argument I could give. It doesn't depend on any kind of like divine edict or anything. It's just how I, you know, if, if, if you were a banker back in 2008, would you have had an obligation to speak out about your profession when it was doing CDOs, right? And me as a software engineer, I think basically our industry creates the next like 2008, except with not with CDOs, I think it's with cryptocurrencies. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting when I think about the connection between the financial crisis, the great financial crisis and uh, cryptocurrencies today and, and also your perspective, because it sounds like you're very impacted by that event and therefore you are frustrated at these people who knowingly see a mania and are leveraging it for their benefit and others and, and then other people's negative outcome. Whereas other people are impacted by the great financial crisis and they're angry at the establishment and they're enacting their anger via investments in cryptocurrencies. So it's almost like both perspectives here are, are very much coming from this event that you say you came of age during it. How, how much do you think, let's just say the millennial generation or all of us living, how much of what we're seeing today is uh, determined or impacted by this event that we all experienced in 07, 08, 09? Oh, I think it's a deeply impactful uh, event. I think it's like a defining feature of our generation. Um, you know, we as a society have not gotten over 2008. Um, like the echoes of that kind of reverberate all the way through our politics, right? And on the left and on the right. Um, because you, no matter what you look at the financial crisis, you're going to see like your perspective reflected back in that, right? Um, you're either going to see it as a problem of, you know, the bank's Get, you know, making risky loans, people that couldn't afford them, 
um, or you're going to see it as you know, um, you know, people taking out risky loans, uh, you know, not acting responsibly, right? And those are the kind of two different perspectives on the financial crisis. If you're kind of from the left or right perspective, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think we all see the outcome of this, that basically we have this like massively unequal system now. Um, and the answer you tell yourself about like why that is kind of informs how you look at um, cryptocurrency today. Um, I mean, cryptocurrency is a very political project. Like if you look in the Genesis block in the Bitcoin blockchain, there's a reference to the bailouts around the financial crisis. Um, and so there's no doubt in my mind that some people are basically saying like, uh, I see cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as basically being a way to um, get back at the system, right? To create a new whole new financial system uh, in which the problems of the last financial crisis basically wouldn't, uh, you know, we could, could resolve the problems of the last financial crisis by building something better or something. Um, and that's kind of part of the narrative that people invest in. Uh, my problem with that is that I don't, having worked in the financial services sector, what I see them building cannot possibly for, uh, serve as the foundation for a new financial system, right? Because it can't fulfill the function of money. Uh, it's a hyper volatile speculative asset, right? That you can't actually build anything on except like other direct gambling products, basically. Um, and so, I reject the narrative that some people have. And I, they've thought about it quite a bit. And there's the whole school of thought that says that like cryptocurrency is basically this kind of, you know, reaction to right the wrongs of the financial crisis and seize power from the bankers and everything. Um, and I reject that for two reasons. One, because I don't think it could work. And number two, when I look at the people that are actually getting rich off this stuff, it's not the masses. It's a large collection of hedge funds and basically the same kind of intermediaries that proceeded to cause the last financial crisis, basically buying up all the crypto now. Um, crypto is actually even more uh, unequally distributed than the dollar is, for instance. It's held by a very small group of people. Um, so the populism around cryptocurrency, I reject outright because it seems to be not be based in fact or reality. Um, it seems to be a tool for the rich to enrich themselves rather that it's like the reverse Robin Hood, rather than being the Robin Hood narrative. But it's being sold as the Robin Hood narrative. And part of the contradiction about cryptocurrency is that no matter what you look at it, you're gonna see what you wanna see inside of it. It's kind of a mirror reflecting back at you um, because it's a political project. Interesting, you know, it really sounds like that narrative of rewriting, creating this new financial system, and coming from these um, these negative feelings with the financial crisis, and tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth here, but it sounds like you're saying we're trying to create a better system, removing all the corruption that happened in that past system, like like creating a system that's incapable of being corrupted, almost. That's part of the narrative that. They sell it on. Yeah. I mean, you can see, like, I, I don't want to, I'm talking about some other person, others, person's view, basically, mm -hmm. about what they see, the populist narrative about cryptocurrency, that, um, which is not the one that I hold. Um, but they really, truly think that this is creating like a whole new financial system. Um, 
and that it would be more transparent, less opaque, and not have the same kind of corruption baked into it. Uh, and I don't see it that way. I see this system that looks fundamentally more corrupt. Yeah. Well, that that brings me to the question of do these systems corrupt us or do we corrupt the systems? Well, any financial system is going to have an ambient level of fraud in it because every single thing that touches in the whole space of human existence has some sort of criminality attached to it at somewhere, some point, right? Um, if I look at things that have existed in the traditional financial system, like there's 200 years of regulation that has kind of grown up around how do we manage these things? And the traditional financial system is, well, not perfect, does prevent a lot of crime. Like banks are deeply regulated entities. Uh, people need to understand that you know, they have to do a lot of protections around like money laundering and consumer protections and have deposit insurance and there's all sorts. I mean, it's a great cost center to the bank to basically just comply with the law because they're some of the most regulated entities in our society because we've had mistakes for the last 200 years. And now we know how to basically do these things a lot better now. Like we basically limited bank runs like 60 years ago. Um, most people in many countries have bank accounts now. They don't worry about the money. They can do instant payments. They all have access to you know, payment rails that are fast, efficient. Um, they have easy access to buying you know, equities and investments at low cost. Um, things don't work perfectly, but they do work very, very well. Um, the United States is a little backwards in some ways because payments are really broken there and they don't guarantee access to banking for a lot of the poor. Um, so this is massive kind of unbanked class in the United States that have to rely on really backwards services. Um, but that could be fixed just like it was largely fixed in a lot of other more progressive countries by basically subsidizing accounts for people and basically creating you know, easy access to like postal banking or low cost banking apps that operate in like lower restricted regimes of regulation. Um, so there's a lot of the solutions that we have um, already on top of a system that actually has money that's stable that people use. Um, so I think there's far more likely to be able to improve the current system than to burn it down and build it on top of something for which there's no economic basis could serve as the foundation for money. Um, so yeah, I, I fundamentally have a kind of more reformist perspective on what to do with financial regulation. Like, There's a mechanism to fix most of the problems that we have with the current financial system by doing what we've done for the last 200 years, or actually it's since banking was invented in Florence. Like we've basically just been improving on the process and it works very well now. And I think it serves most people's needs when it's done right. And I think we're closer to that than most people know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting you mentioned the word reform and you're a reformist, and I think that does encapsulate it quite well. And it makes me wonder if you, I'll rephrase it. So what would be better in your mind to reform the systems or to reform humanity? Like if we were to try to eradicate corruption, is it better to tinker with the systems or tinker with the heart of humanity? 
Well, I think fundamentally, is it even possible? (laughs) I don't think humans change, right? (laughs) I think the most you can do is try to create systems around the human nature, right? Um, Take, for instance, crime. Like um, every bank, when you open an account, has to do an identity check on you in which they verify some aspect of like your biometrics and everything. And they do that because um, they have reporting obligations to act to cooperate with law enforcement around the movement of money to trace it back to crime, right? So this is called like know your customer requirements. Um, And that's baked into our banking system. Um, So instead of trying to like say, oh, we shouldn't have criminals. What if you say, oh, how do we just make sure that criminals um, can't move money inside of the system uh, to facilitate crime? So rather than trying to um, you know, fix the, the fundamental problem of humans are going to do bad things sometimes. You say, oh, well, humans are going to do bad things sometimes, and here's how we you know, deal with that. Uh, and that's the best you can ever possibly do in the financial system. Um, and um, crypto seems to be going the opposite direction and saying like, okay, there should be no regulation. Everything should be determined by pure anarchy and market forces. Um, there should be no central body to dictate around how do we move money or like when is it legal to move money um so like the crypto thing looks like a very sort of anti-state anti-democratic anti-law thing that we should have this unregulated payment rail in which anybody can do anything with no controls and i don't see that as being a good thing for the world i think that's largely going to be used for bad things that people (laughs) are going to do with it and those things you know that cause problems for the world. Mm-hmm. It certainly seems that, so, I mean, during the course of our conversation, speculative manias seem more of a feature than a bug of humanity. And it sounds like you're saying it's unlikely to change humanity. So in that case, do you have hope of changing our interaction with speculative manias in this current environment of crypto? Or is it more just not necessarily changing the big picture, but just like letting a few folks know like, hey, think about this maybe a little differently. Well, I'll go back to my reformist. We already did this. This is a solved problem because humanity has recovered from speculative manias in the past, right? Uh, we had one with the, before the crash in 1929. Um, people started gambling on all number of these kind of crazy products that look like cryptocurrencies all the way back in the 1920s. People were inventing financial products left and right um, around ventures that were mostly fraudulent. There was like a lot of things that looked like meme coins, basically, but they were traded back in like the 1920s, right? So, you know, nothing is new under the sun here. People, whenever there's been people that want to make money by you know, having other fools buy their products, like they're going to find a way to do it, basically. Um, I don't think that's going to go away, but what we did do after that crisis is basically create a class of products that are called securities. And there's something called the Securities Act of the 1930s, which basically said, okay, well, we can't entirely eliminate all of the fraud, but how do we minimize the fraud um, so that people that want to create these speculative products have to register with a government agency um, whenever they do actions that impact large amounts of investors, they have to report it to a government body. Um, And this is a fairly developed regime that we have. It's called the securities law enforcement, right? We have a whole government body that does just this. They're called the SEC, right? Um, So we solved this problem. um, And now what we have right now 
is a whole class of new digital products that are basically the same things we had back in the 1920s have done online, except they meet this exact same legal criterion as securities. So there's a very clear answer, regulate cryptocurrencies as securities and then supply the laws that we basically have already put in place. Um, and yeah, that's my kind of reformist perspective. These things, there's already a framework that we've developed for basically how to minimize harm to the public. Let's just do that again. The internet doesn't change it. And how likely in your view is that outcome? Well, the stated opinion of the SEC in the United States is that cryptocurrencies are securities, um, which would put them under the purview of the SEC um, and would require all the people that are selling them right now to kind of become far more regulated um, in how they can sell them to the public, um, which would probably squeeze out most of the projects that exist. Um, if that were, if the Americans said tomorrow, like, okay, every single crypto exchange domiciled in the United States has to register all of their security, all of their cryptocurrencies as securities, probably overnight, 95% of them would crash. Um, and what's left would still be a bunch of basically valueless penny stocks with no income at that point. And they actually would be traditional stocks at that point, right? Which people would be free to buy. Um, we have a market for that. They're called uh, like penny stocks in the States. They're called like OTC penny stocks. And some of them look like cryptocurrencies, but like most people don't trade penny stocks because they're considered super high risk asset class. Um, and the people that want to trade that stuff at that point, I say let them have at it um, because most of the public harm has been squeezed out. Um, and the only people left kind of participating in that market are people who like willingly want to risk large amounts of money uh, on things that are sort of not completely fraudulent, but like just the next level up. Um, and at that point, then it seems to me that harm is minimized and these things would probably exist within the regulatory framework. Mm -hmm. And so, Speak going back to the populist rage, what would be, in your view, a better way to direct anger and frustration um, towards the bailout system and growing inequality and all these issues? Um, better regulation of the banks. Like, and this may become a surprise to some people, like having worked in the financial services sector myself, like they desperately need more regulation. Um, like everybody that even works around this field knows this. Uh, there's just too much outright speculation that's happening um, around the products these banks are allowed to trade uh, and who they can sell them to. Um, that needs to stop. Um, and so if you wanna have direct populist rage towards something, uh, direct it toward better financial regulation um, rather than trying to burn the system to the ground. This to me seems like the obvious thing. Um, and you do that by electing leaders that make financial regulation a priority. Because it's the one thing that kind of touches us all in society that we should, like, as citizens of our country, should have in common that we want a well regulated capital markets um, that has less corruption inside of it. Um, and you, you never can squeeze all of that out, but we can certainly squeeze a lot of it out. And that just comes from our politicians and electing better leaders. And so this is my kind of fundamental faith in like the democratic process uh, is the system by which we enact reform. We don't do it through this sort of techno anarchism 
in which we create things outside the law to allegedly fix the fundamentals of our civilization. I don't see that as a viable path forward. Mm -hmm. So kind of wrapping up here, I, I do sense hope in your, uh, the way you're thinking about this. And I don't know if I just want to give you a chance to explain that more specifically, if there is, maybe you don't have hope that, that we're going to like come through this without a financial mania and a crash and everything. But do you have a sense of hope that we could uh, redirect some of these um, energies in ways that you've kind of just laid out? Um, my biggest fear that I see with the cryptocurrency stuff comes from the historical precedents I see in the past. Um, and there's this one particular lesson, which comes from Albania, which back in the 1990s um, had a very pathological problem um, in which the country basically became entangled with lots of pyramid schemes uh, that took over mm. after they left the communist bloc, right? And all these pyramid schemes basically proliferated. Um, and to the point where they basically ate up about like 30% of GDP of the entire country. Um, so basically like where 30% of the population or 30% of the money of the population was allocated toward these pyramid schemes. Um, and that ended very badly um, because the population basically descended into civil war after there was the inevitable crash of the pyramid schemes. Um, and so the problem I see is that I don't want Albania to happen on a global scale um, because I see a lot of people who are basically investing in things that to first approximation look like pyramid schemes. Uh, and it's getting to the point where if this becomes so widespread um, that a certain percentage of the global GDP becomes allocated to this frothy mess of pyramid schemes, uh, I think it's going to end very badly, not just for one country, but for a lot of people. Um, and I don't want to see that happen, um, <laughs> cause that would be just massively disruptive to like the whole of humanity, especially the poor, uh, in countries where people are investing things that they really can't afford to lose. Um, and the lessons of Albania is that that caused like less and less violence and civil war, uh, at the back end of a speculative mania, uh, that's the unhappy path that I see um, <laughs> where this basically just blows up. So to such a vast scale that we can't control it anymore. Uh, and the end result is just massive human suffering on a scale that, you know, makes the last financial crisis look very tame. Uh, that would be bad. Um, and then the happy path, uh, frankly, is I just like see the United States basically deciding to enforce its laws. Um, to regulate these things like securities, to put them under the basic consumer protections that we've tested for the last 80 years, which we know work. Uh, and the whole thing kind of deflates down to a much smaller version of itself. Um, and if there is any merits to the technology, purely on the technology basis, those can be let to bloom, um, but in a way such that they can't hurt the public anymore. Um, and it becomes a very kind of niche thing rather than something that's eating up large percentages of GDP on you know, 
speculative, valueless speculative assets that have no purpose other than being like a dog meme or something. Um, you know, that just seems bad to me. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm bullish on the state regulating these things to a point where they don't harm people anymore. And that would be the happiest path as we forward. Okay, so I've never heard about Albania and their uh, all their Ponzi schemes and everything. You said in the 1990s? In the 1990s, um, basically when Albania left the Soviet bloc, um, basically what happened was that a lot of people started investment funds because the population wasn't quite familiar with, because they've lived for communism their entire lives. Um, basically what the kind of right institutions to have in a society were to basically ensure that investments aren't fraudulent, right? So Albania with the new market system they had basically became this like libertarian utopia in which basically anybody could spin up these investment funds, kind of like, um, allegedly they were like, um, basically like infrastructure development funds where they would take people's money from the public and they invested in public works or they invested in like, uh, productive enterprises that would generate cash flows and they pay out dividends based on that. Except they forgot to do the latter part. Um, it turns out when you don't have people that basically, you know, when you take other people's money uh, and there's no regulation, people tend to tend to run off with it. Uh, that's true everywhere in the world, right? Um, and so when there's no regulation on these kind of things, they basically usually morph into pyramid schemes, right? Where basically people just pay out insiders uh, and they try to keep the solvency of the company or the enterprise long enough by paying out a few groups of people from other people's money that they bring in, right? Um, and so that's how fraudulent investment funds start. And if there's no checks and controls on those things, they can grow to an enormous size, right? Because it can be very, very easy to keep the illusion of solvency going. Um, and so, that's the problem I see with a lot of these like crypto assets as well, is that they're basically running on exactly the same principle. Um, it's an asset class that kind of simply pays out uh, old investors from new investors, very much like a pyramid scheme does. And these exchanges are acting as brokers, uh, which basically control the flow of money in and out. Um, and so this is kind of like multiple levels of indirection around it being a pyramid scheme. But at its heart, the whole crypto asset space kind of looks sort of Ponzi-ish. It's, it's about kind of bringing more money in than discharging it out, right? Um, and there's no source of income from it. So all of these things look very Ponzi-ish. Um, and so my fear is that um, the same kind of phenomenon happens um, around crypto assets that happened in Albania um, because the, the historical similarities are like whenever you have a large asset class that's completely unregulated, you end up having a certain level it just be Ponzi schemes that comes into existence, right? It's just it's what happens. Mm -hmm. Well, Stephen, I got to say, this has been a very fun conversation. I really appreciate you taking me on the tour of um, your thoughts and and where you think things could or might be going. If folks want to find more of your work and your writing, where might they find that? Um, so I'm smdeal on Twitter, uh, and my website is stephendeal.com. Um, okay, great. Well, thank you so much, and um, I, I like I really appreciate this. Thank you for taking the time. Cool. Thanks for coming on today, Bradford. Cheers. All right. Bye bye. 
And that's a wrap. If you like what we do here, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It's the best way to help us get our content out to the most people. And that way we can keep doing this every week. So we look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks again.